Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is Almost Famous. This is me having a strangely intimate conversation with someone I'll probably never talk to again. How's it going? How's your day been? My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting in Los Angeles. Uh, it's very hot in Los Angeles. I don't mean to talk about the weather, but it's almost 100 degrees outside. Uh, the Santa Ana winds are blowing. For those of you uh, out there who are Joan Didion fans, perhaps you've read about the Santa Ana winds, which blow out of the desert. Uh, like uh, It's like a blow dryer. Hot, dry, suffocating winds that uh, roar through the metropolis and cause people with allergies to cough. So that's happening this week. And then, of course, the uh, Arctic shelf, the Arctic uh, polar ice cap, that's coming apart. It's official. Sea levels will rise. It's irreversible. I don't know if you read that news. So much cheery news lately in the media regarding uh, climate change. And you know what? It's actually a good thing. We need this shitty news to be public and we need it to be repeated. There's nothing, there's nothing more disgusting to me than people who pretend like this isn't real. 
what, what a bunch of fucking assholes. Like, I don't know if we can do anything to stop it now, especially with regard to population. But don't say it's not happening. It's because you want to make some money or you want power. What a shitty thing to do. So uh, I should also say, to just to try to uh, you know bring a little levity into this, that I was reading online. There's like there's so much stuff online. How many articles and opinions can you digest? That's what the internet seems to be asking of us. And uh, I, of course, for some reason, uh, am trying to read all of it. And I read that uh, happiness is up overall, broadly speaking, worldwide. That was, there was a poll conducted. Apparently, people are happier than they've ever than they've ever been. And I get it. You know, medicine's better than it's ever been. There's no bubonic plague. People have uh, like cotton t-shirts and uh, shoes and uh, cell phones so they can text each other or uh, look at their phones to avoid having to interact with one another. So I read that and then there was another poll conducted that said uh, an overwhelming majority of people don't care about the prospect of the end of humanity vis-a-vis climate change. It's like, uh, so what? How does that affect me? How does the end of humanity affect me? So, I don't know. What do you do with all of it? People are happier than ever. They don't give a shit. What is it with people? As a, what are we doing? And, and you know what? What are we supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What is the? How should a person be? To quote uh, Sheila Hetty, what am I supposed to do? Recycle? Here's what I do. I recycle. I eat vegetarian. Uh, I try not, I don't drive very much. Ride a bike around when I can in this crazy city. It's, what else do you do? Buy, eat, buy local food. It's crazy. It's crazy. So that's my week. I've been, I've been obsessing about that. I continue to obsess about that. I think I've probably obsessed about that on this program before. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's just get to uh, the guest today because I have a great show for you today. Stacy Durasmo is here. Uh, we had a great talk. She's got a new novel out called Wonderland. It's available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And I should add that Stacy is actually out on book tour right now. If you're listening today, uh, the day that this show uh, rolls out into the world, Wednesday, May 14th, 2014, you can catch Stacy up in Seattle tonight at 7.30 p.m., at Town Hall, that's at 1119 8th Avenue. And then tomorrow night in Portland, she'll be at Powell's, uh, if you want to catch her there. On May 20th, she's in Austin, Texas at Book People. May 21st, she'll be back in California, up in San Francisco at Green Apple Books. And uh, there's more. And if you want to know about it, go to stacyerasmo.com, and you can find uh, more tour dates and appearances and whatnot. So she and I had a good talk. Uh, she was actually here in my uh, apartment, in studio as I like to say. Uh, it was a very enjoyable experience. So here she is, folks. This is Stacy Durasmo, and her new novel, once again, is called Wonderland. The novel is called Wonderland, um, and it has to do with the main character. Is Her name is Anna Brundage. She's 44. Good name. <laughs> I like that name. I always pay attention to what people name their characters. and like, I'm like, I can get Anna Brundage as like a rock star. I don't know. It's a rock star name. It's an American name, yeah. right? Um, it's a name with a little bit of flavor to it. Um, anyway, so she was a, a kind of indie music sensation seven years before the book started. Um, and then she she stopped. She just kind of walked away from the scene, um, sort of in some ways lost her inspiration. And now seven years later, she's touring behind a CD called Wonderland, which she's produced herself. And the book, the present action of the book takes place as she's on this comeback tour through Europe. But I should say it's not the glamorous Europe. It's more like the... the um, with Christiana and Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of places where bands actually do play, but they're not the major Like cities. Wembley Stadium or... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't do um, Amsterdam where there are a number of places where bands usually play, but, you know, so she's in she's in a lot of... Latvia, uh, Prague, um, great cities, but not not mostly major cities yeah i went to a, i saw willie nelson in amsterdam years ago at this like old converted church yeah what was it i wish i could remember the name. it was beautiful it was like the coolest venue ever you see amazing people in europe i mean europe really is a place where they are endlessly eager for american music and american musicians and also where the sell-by date basically doesn't exist so that you can where we kind of mill through folks pretty fast here in Europe, um, you can you can still see a lot of acts that have long since kind of lost their audience in the U.S., but they're still they're often still wonderful musicians, and um, so it's actually a great place. Yeah, you know, I was listening to uh, an interview. I want to say it was like a WTF interview with um, Ben Montench, mm -hmm. the is it the keyboard player for Tom Petty? 
Okay. But he was just talking about the, you know, when they were just getting started and how the radio stations in the United States wouldn't touch them. Yeah. But over in England, they immediately got it. Yeah. They went over on a tour over there. They were a big hit. And then they came back and then they launched. Yeah. Europe is really like that. In fact, um, while I was doing research for the book, I went on tour for a little while with the band Scissor Sisters, which is an American band. How they, did you How did you arrange that? I Well, I arranged that. It was sort of a happy accident. Um, I was looking to go out with people who actually were, were littler. Um, I tried with Grizzly Bear. I tried with Glenn Hansard, which was before Once Was a Broadway Musical, in addition to being a film. I tried with a couple different folks, and no one would let me go on the bus with them, essentially, which is what I really, really needed to do, right? Um, I happened to know Jason Sellers, uh, Jake Shears. He was a he was an old Wait, friend. The guy in the Scissor Sisters has the last name Shears. Well, that's his stage name. Oh, okay. his stage name is Jake Shears. His his his, his given name. Yeah, his mother, Mister and Mrs. Shears, right. said let's, let's name him Jake. No, his given name is Jason Sellers, and he was just kind of around. I'm in my social circle and I ran into him at a party and I said, God, I'm looking for this, uh, for a band to go out with and no one will let me go. And he said, Oh, well, we're going to Europe in July. Why don't you come? So I was like, great. So you got great. to ride on the bus. Oh yes. All the right. bus, the, the plane, the car, the van, the, um, I got to, you know, I had, I had complete free reign, which was Fantastic. I mean, no one in the book is based on anyone in the band Scissor Sisters. I wasn't looking for characters. What I was looking for was details. Sure. It was a research. Well, yeah. And, you know, we all, or maybe a lot of us, we might kind of think that we know what a tour is like, but we really don't. And I knew that I didn't. And right. so... I have a very idealized version. I'm sure it's yeah. not that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not. In some ways, it. In some ways, it is in the sense that... Um, the funny part about going out with Scissor Sisters is that they have always been basically bigger in Europe than they have ever been in the States. Um, they just went mad for them in Europe, and we were touring Europe, so it was actually this very luxurious tour. Um, there was no lugging by me or at the band. There was no lugging equipment in the rain. You didn't have to work for your, you know, for your fare. No, are wow. you kidding? I don't. I didn't touch my luggage for the, you know, for the whole time I was out. With the band, there was the the bus with the band and the backup singers. The bus with all the roadies. Um, it was it was pretty lush, and that was great. I mean, what, what's it like on the bus? Because I always think about this with bands that tour on buses. Like they're sleeping in little pods. Oh yeah, you're sleeping in these. You're sleeping in. Well, the bus that we were in was a was a big double decker bus. And um, there were there was like a movie screen downstairs and a movie screen upstairs, like a huge like TV monitor and fridges and a kitchen. And then there are these long. It looks like in in old movies sleeper cars. That's what it looks like. These these sort of rows of bunks, and people people kind of slide into their little bunks at night. Um, so okay, so not to get like, uh, but I mean it's a, it's a I think it's a question that arises in people's minds if you're in these sort of close quarters like people are always imagining rock stars having sex on the bus i know it doesn't how can you well it's i mean it's interesting because part of all of our fantasy about rock stars is that they get to do everything all the time right right with impunity oh totally <laughs> no rules you know no problem no credit limit just you know go wild and 
I think, of course, that has happened, right? I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the stories are are true and are amazing. But, but it's also, there are more rules and there's more accommodating of other people in the way you say than, than we imagine. You are in these little tiny bunks. And not only that, but um, in a lot of the places where we were playing, we were doing these these festivals. So the bus would be, you'd be out really in the middle of nowhere in some Eastern European country. And people are coming in and out of the bus all day long. So if you're trying to have some like, fabulous epic sex <laughs> adventure <laughs> it's 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 not that easy right. and not only that but there is a kind of at least in my experience with sisters sisters there is a kind of code of honor like the bus is collective space yeah so How, who keeps it clean uh that's a good question the road i don't it, was, it wasn't dirty it was a little messy but messy the way it would be like if you're camping and the bathrooms well, there are rules about that, too. There's, there's sort of rules about what you should and shouldn't do on the bus. Yeah. Um, and there are things that are not nice on the bus, just like it would not be nice on a Greyhound bus. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think that – so it's not like people don't get up to stuff. Of course they do. But it's not quite the free-for-all that we hope it is. The other thing about these festivals and things is that very often the band would play their set and say they even go on at 10 o'clock at night, right? Something like that. And then, you know, you get on the bus and you drive. So if you're planning to, you know, pick up five or six people from the crowd, you better hurry. Yes. Because because the bus is leaving. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be efficient. It's like you have to be... <laughs> efficiency doesn't usually factor into, like, the rock star life no. when you think about it. But that's what no. you would have to do. No, we think... And that's part of the rock star's job, right? To generate those fantasies. Right. We all want to think that it's like that but it isn't always and the other thing that that's impossible to get into movies usually or a lot of the images that we see of this is how much downtime there is yes there's a lot of strange sort of beautiful drifting downtime um but it can also be that can also be the dark time that's when these guys that's when these guys are like shooting up or drinking too much or and and you can see how that could happen in a heartbeat. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a performer, and I'm I'm also not uh, I don't have an addictive personality. But it's it's sort of like war, where they say you know long periods of boredom punctuated by terror. Yeah. So you're supposed to sit around for you know maybe ten hours, waiting to go on at nine, ten, eleven o'clock at night, and when you hit that stage, you are supposed to bring the thunder and the lightning and the you know, the huge cathartic experience that the fans came for. If you're a person who needs a little something to get there and also who maybe needs a little something to get through the day, it would be so easy. Well, and see, this is what I always say. I mean, I know that plenty of rock stars have, uh, you know, self-destructed. I know that obviously there's like well-documented stories of people, whether they kill themselves or whether they just flame out, you know, that happens. But there, there are a few professions that I think are as um, accommodating to a substance abuse habit as being a rock star simply because, you know, if, if I'm at home and I'm uh, an alcoholic or I'm into heroin or whatever, I'm doing it at home and I'm waking right. up here and I'm hungover. 
if you're a rock star, at least you get to go out and have that like experience on stage exactly. and that energy exchange with the crowd. No, exactly. Which I think can, I mean, I have to imagine, I've obviously never done this, but yeah. I have to imagine that if I were super hungover, strung out from the road, yeah, that I could go out onto stage with a raging hangover and that the experience of playing live music in front of like an adoring audience and feeling that powerful absolutely. energy exchange would, you know, end the hangover. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not only is it accommodating of um, substances, but in some ways it invites it just in the sense that one thing that I didn't understand, although you would think that I, that I would have been able to get this, um, but that I came to understand in a much more visceral way watching the band perform night after night, is that that energy exchange that you talk about, I mean, you are standing, they were standing sometime, we, since I'm with the band now. <laughs> You're in the band. We, yeah. <laughs> um, they would be performing in front of maybe, you know, 20,000 people at a time. That's how big they were and, playing over well, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it, was, it was these festivals, right? Oh, the right. crowd is there to have a profound decentering experience. Yeah. They are not there to have a kind of cerebral, um, a kind of quiet cerebral journey. They are there. That was always me at the rock show. I'm like <laughs> having a quiet cerebral I'm like, journey. I'm like too, too stoned. Like trying to be like, what does this mean? <laughs> My friend's like, shut the fuck yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, when they say, you know, we're here to rock. Are you yeah. ready to rock? They're talking. One of the things that they're talking about is people coming to have a real, visceral primal transporting experience it is absolutely church yeah and um so it's better than church in some ways <laughs> no, it's, it's incredible and so i can completely imagine that if you're a performer you want to get into an altered state somehow to get the fans to come with you. I mean, this is something that we don't have in writing, right? Right, well, yeah. When I give a reading... <laughs> Book soup. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not... People aren't there to lose their everyday consciousness. But people often come to hear music to move out of their everyday consciousness. And it's, I mean, that's even true of, say, classical music. Or, you know, if you go to see... Philip Glass. I mean, anything. It's gonna it's gonna move you out of your normal way of thinking, your normal biorhythms. Well, what I always say is that uh, you know all all the different art forms have their merits, and I obviously love books, and I think that the the work that you have to do to yeah. get the high or whatever yeah. from books is substantial, but yeah. the payoff can be exactly. amazing. Music is so quick to the vein. Exactly. It's immediate. Exactly. And it just kind of runs you over and. Exactly. I, I did an event in New York last week at Housing Works with the um, singer-songwriter Rachel Yamagata, who is quite wonderful. And she played a few songs, and then I read a little bit, and then we talked. And it was extraordinary watching her perform because that straight into the jugular thing that you're talking about happened immediately. Yeah. I looked over. I mean, I was in a bookstore, and I looked over to my left, and maybe 50 feet away there was a couple making out yeah it's like no one makes out at readings right. i had willie vlotten uh on this show he's a novelist but he's also the lead singer in a, in a really cool band oh cool so when he does his readings he brings his guitar yeah and i'm just like you bastard you yeah can, exactly you can sing and it's just like it's the double whammy but no um, exactly I, I feel like every i mean it can be easy to say this but it's, it's sometimes seems like all artists 
are trying to be musicians or wish they were, at least in some. Oh, yeah. I kind of feel that way. Oh, yeah. If I were musical, what a great gift, you know. It's it's an extraordinary gift. I mean, I'm not, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. I play no instruments. I have no musical talent or aspiration. Um, but it's as if they can fly. I mean, mm-hmm. they can make something in another medium. Um, and when you when you see people doing that, when you're moved by that, it truly is like nothing else. And, uh, you know, in some ways I think all books are failures in a way, right? Like we're always reaching for something. And I think that in some ways in Wonderland, I was trying to write about a medium that in many ways I don't entirely understand. And I don't know how they do that. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? It would be like writing a book about, um, you know, tightrope walkers in the circus i don't know how they do that either but i'm very very curious about that well and there's something too about the like when you say like they're working in another medium or they can fly like i'm always fascinated particularly with the live music experience by the interaction between the performers and the music and the people there yeah because as i get older I find myself uh, sort of rolling my eyes at a lot of the conventions of rock stardom. Yeah. Like I always notice that all the all the lead singers are these really thin-hipped guys. Do you <laughs> yeah. ever notice that? Yeah. It's like a thing. Yeah, they I mean, are now. You have to. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have like these like a, a twenty-four inch yeah, yeah. snake-hipped ways or whatever you call it, and then everyone's so into the look. You got these guys that are so into their fashion. Yeah. There's such a fashion element to it, which I don't necessarily oppose, but I. I'm not right. similarly gifted. And I just right. go, my God, you've got to think of your whole look. And, um, but then I go to see a live show yeah. and all of my cynicism goes away. Right. Because they make the magic happen. Right. Because they bring the thing. And there's that exchange between the people and the music that yeah. I always walk away going, why don't I do this more? This is good for me. I feel oh, nourished. Yeah. I feel nourished by that experience. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously people have talked a lot about the influence of MTV and visual culture on music and how that really changed and et cetera, et cetera, because it's not always, I mean, you know, Joe Cocker was, um, unbelievably intense and charismatic and magnetic, but he's not no disrespect to Joe Cocker, but you know, he's not a snake hipped Billy Adonis. Joel, you know, same thing. Yeah. Billy Joel, Iggy pop, um, uh, Iggy pops ripped. I mean, he's like, he's kind of got no, that he is. look, but he's not like, he's not like an Adonis. I mean, no, but he, he's definitely like a, he's the kind of rock star that I'm thinking of. Like, he seems like another species to me. Well, exactly. And and that's part of what we want from them. We want um, what I was on, did an onstage interview with Michael Stipe last week, and he was talking about uh, making music and having a kind of shamanic experience. And that's what we go there yeah, for. Sure. And when it's good, when it's not stupid when it's when it's really a thing of beauty i mean i've seen patty smith in concert a few times and i she you know the charisma shoots out of every cell of her body i've it is an unbelievable experience what is that i don't know okay so that's is it something you can learn no it's like, and is it an outgrowth of the musicality or is it like some sort of innate, like she's vibrating at a certain frequency? I don't know. I think it's, I think it's some ability to, to open yourself up to a vibe in the universe that, um, that possibly you're a person who 
feels that more yeah. right, than others, that it's more available to you. And then you have to be willing to open yourself up to it or not, right? Um, but, you know, years ago, I'm a huge fan of Dusty Springfield. Yeah. My father used to listen to her. I worshipped her. What a voice. I, oh, my God. She made this astonishing record called Dusty in Memphis that's on everyone's, like, top ten records of all time, you know, pop records. And um, I got to interview her what turned out to be a few years before she died. And, um, you know, she was this girl from Ireland, this kind of pudding-faced girl, Irish Catholic girl, who had this astonishing, soulful, heartbreaking, sensual sound. And so I finally got to interview her, and I was like, where did that come from? How did you do it? And she truly could not tell me. Yeah. Because she doesn't know. No, it's like, you know what it reminds me of similarly is... um Great athletes, yeah, not being able to verbalize what they're doing yeah. when they're, you know, it's like it's beyond that somehow. Yeah, you know? and, exactly. And I mean, if you're a great runner, right, you can not run. You can let yourself get so fat that you can't run. You can refuse to express your gift, but it's a gift. And those people who have that that lightning charisma. It's. I think it's a gift. I mm. don't think it can be. So, so aside from Patti Smith, uh, who have you ever seen perform where you were like truly bowled over? Yeah, um, Van Morrison, complete. I'm dating myself, but um, complete Dionysian experience. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. He doesn't do a lot of live shows, does he? I've Not heard he's. So, I've heard he's sort of difficult. I've heard stories. Yeah, I've heard stories about him. Like, you know, reading in like the music media or whatever that he's kind of like a a uh, prickly person to that's deal with. That's too bad. Yeah, that's too bad. Um St. Vincent, I've seen her in concert a couple times recently and she is phenomenal. She truly is phenomenal. There's a reason that she's the kind of reigning uh queen of indie music right now because she is phenomenal. Actually, you might find this surprising, but I, I happened to see Joan Jett in concert maybe 10 years ago. She was the first rock star that I ever responded to. She had charisma for days. Yeah. That room, I was standing in this room. It was this kind of funny event. And I, I swear to you, every man, woman, and child was transfixed by her. She, she has it. Yeah. She just has it well i was in like what i must have been in like first grade or something when i love rock and roll yeah came. and so like that song right. easy enough to understand <laughs> it's a great song yeah and it's a, it's gr- a great it still holds song. up it is it's like bulletproof right. but i remember very distinctly being like this is something right you know? turn and, it up yep everyone loved it turn it up um, god why am i not my great-grandfather was a piano player professionally mm. nobody in my family line has turned really? out musical not you no, I've never you taken my, even... my parents never got a piano. Maybe I could do yeah, it. Yeah, you don't know. You might have. I don't know. You might have lurking. You might have lurking. I can type fast in there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hell of a typist. Um, so I want to talk to you about like thematically sure. where you're working in this book because it really resonates with me. Hmm. Um, you know, as somebody who published a book several years ago, hasn't published another one since, has been like flailing around for a creative identity. Yeah, this is how I started doing this show. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like sort of, uh, you know, responding to um, uh, the way things have shifted in publishing, mm. responding to my own interests and tastes as a reader, mm. 
not really knowing exactly how to fit in. Yeah. You know, it's just like wrestling with all that. Like, yeah. I guess a, a natural place to start would be to say, like, do you find yourself wrestling similarly somehow or thinking to yourself, like, you know, I want to explore an artist who's trying to make a comeback at the age of, what, 44? Yeah, she's 44. And um, feeling like, you know, I want to know about that, like the emotional experience of that and, and whether or not it's possible. Yeah. And I think there's interesting questions that it raises about, you know, is pursuing your artistic vision, you know, a healthy thing? Is it a selfish thing? Yeah. Is it positive or negative? Like yeah. I, I run up against those questions, like as a parent, like, yeah. am I being selfish? Yeah. You know? So yeah. can you speak yeah. to that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think that, I think that one way to think about it might be by using the word vocation right? Mm. Anna has a vocation. The thing, about, the thing about vocations is that in a funny kind of way, they're neither selfish nor selfless. What they are is unreasonable. Yes. It's unreasonable. Um, when you say you have a kid, you know, I, I don't have kids. And what I always think is, you know, between the fever and the paragraph, the fever wins, right? You have to take care of this being. Uh, yes. There's, there's no... That's not a question. Um, but vocations are unreasonable, and they ask too much of us. They ask too much of the world. Um, they, they ask to be expressed in a world that actually isn't necessarily looking for them. No one cares, or, well, let me say, that sounds too harsh. No one's running around saying, please, please, Stacy." write another novel right now. Right. It doesn't work that way. And so you're constantly making a path where there isn't one. And that that is an unreasonable thing to do. The thing about books, about making books, is that they require a completely unreasonable amount of time. And, and yeah, and like energy. It's, an, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, uh, Wonderland took me four years to write. And I had... I truly had no idea what I was doing or if I could pull it off. I thought I'm really wading into territory that I that I where I don't have proficiency, where I don't understand, where the cliches are many. Um, but I think that that feeling of seeking passionately and irrationally is something that anyone who's trying to make anything, whether it's a book. A record, a bridge, a company, a new kind of rubber band. But especially in, in, in middle age. It's very hard. If you're 24. No, I know. But you know, when I'm, I'm, I'm almost 40 and I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is going to happen? You're a baby. I know, you're but not as much of a baby <laughs> as I used to be. I know. Well, that was what interested me in the book because, I mean, we all, we can all kind of intuitively get with that youthful energy that, that, you know, you know, let me add it of the first time. Yeah. Right. Book one, album one. I feel, I feel like publisher. I mean, I think this is true in all the arts, but I feel like publishers definitely are always looking for like the next oh, totally. hot young thing. It's like, I can sense it. They're a lot more receptive. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Because we think, you know, because that's all possibility, mm -hmm. right? Right. Nothing's been proven. Nothing's happened. You know, in the art world, it's even more pronounced. I mean, you know, for them, if it's like a, like a 16-year-old from Tasmania, 
really? whose work is invisible. <laughs> they're they're all about that because yeah. that's nothing but possibility, right? Yeah. And what interested me in making this book is not the first time, but what happens on like the fifth time, mm-hmm. and what happens when there's truly no net. It's basically all risk, yes. and the chance of failure is very, very high. Right. And I'm starting to sweat. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And do you mind if I take some oxygen? I know exactly. And where do you find? Where do you get the 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 thing? Where do you get the juju to the to do that? Where do you? What do you summon it up from? Yeah. And. This is really the question. I mean, I'm very, very moved and impressed by people who do keep going and who change as they keep, you know, Marianne Faithful, who has, who really is a very far cry from the kind of um, sweet-voiced, swinging young thing that she was in the 60s. She's this completely different person now as an artist. Um, I'm, I'm very, very interested in that because I think that what we often think is, um, well, what I need is that energy of youth, right? But I don't think that's it. I think what we need often is that willingness to surrender. Okay. To say, I'm going. I'm just, I'm just going out there. I'm just going to do it, and I'm going to let what happens happen. I think the thing that they don't tell you about getting older or that somehow I missed it is that it's not that you feel stiffer although you might it's that you feel more vulnerable and the the possibility of making a fool of yourself of splatting you know spectacularly just goes up and up and up and so you have to be willing to say i'll be that holy fool i don't care i or I care, but I'm doing it anyway. Because what happens to Anna over the course of the book, without giving anything away, is that she changes. It, her, she shifts a bit, mm-hmm. and and in that shifting is is where she finds the way to go on, right? Um, I mean, we love, we all love, even though you know those snake hipped guys who are like. Snake hips. I so like that. So young, so on fire, so beautiful. That's fantastic. And the young women who are so like, there's this great documentary out now about Kathleen Hanna. Um, yeah, yeah. Know, yeah. I know Cinny Anderson. Yeah. I was a Kickstarter supporter <laughs> of that. <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting movie, and there's all this footage of her when she's so young and yeah. just screaming her head off and being so unbelievably bold. It's so fleeting. It's youth. very fleeting. I, I tweeted about this not too long ago, and it's, a, it's like one of those stupid thoughts that you tweet. I know. It's like, oh, wait, this just in. Yes. Youth is fleeting. <laughs> but it was like, no, but I was thinking to myself, you know, because you, especially in Los Angeles, there's lots I of know. beauty everywhere. I know. And you think about like, you're t- like there's, you know, I, you can be beautiful at any age. Yeah. So I got to start there. But, you know, like young beauty. No, I know. And you, sometimes I'll pass somebody and I'll be like, my God, like they'll never be more beautiful. I know. And is it like a flash moment? Because if you think about it, like a piece of fruit is like at its peak yeah. ripeness. Yeah. Do you ever see like, like I yeah. think like you catch like old footage of like a rock god or rock goddess. Incredible. And, and you see it in that moment and you're like, oh. Incredible. And it's it's gone so relatively yeah. quickly. No, that's part of its beauty is the transitory nature of it. I mean, footage of Mick Jagger from... 
1969, 1970. He's so beautiful. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. It's like, well, yeah, he definitely should have had all the money and all the sex and all the access that he wanted because he just deserved it. He just was for blessed. being for being <laughs> that beautiful. He just deserves to have it. But but that is, I mean, I think that especially in this country, we're very youth obsessed. Well, we're youth obsessed, <laughs> but also we think we're very reluctant to say part very often part of what makes things beautiful is the fact that they are transitory Mm -hmm. they are the flowers right the trees the people there is a moment when it just flares up and it's just visually so unbelievably gorgeous yeah and then it and then it changes. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the Rolling Stones, just to you know, keep using that example, they haven't really made a ton of new music or no. vital new music in, what, 40 years? Yeah, no. So, and, and that's not to knock them because their catalog is so amazing. And I think they have. They made a, a, an album not too many years ago that was well-reviewed, yeah. but it didn't get radio play, whatever that means, you know? <laughs> that seems typical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can't really knock it for that. But usually with bands... Um, a couple of thoughts. First of all, it's usually like a pretty narrow window of high energy yeah. where they knock out all this music. Like yeah. you look at the Beatles, you look at the yeah. Rolling Stones. And then the other thing is that the bands who go the distance, like the Rolling Stones or U2, yeah. there's something very much uh, similar, I think, to uh, a marriage. Yeah. Like the, the relationship between these band members, so many bands implode. Oh, so many yeah. times there's infighting and yeah. bad blood. And I mean, the Rolling Stones, for as long as they've been around, you know, when you read Keith Richards' uh, book. <laughs> Which I did. Yeah. Cover to cover. Of course. Yeah. He's yeah. like, he, but he's like knocking Mick. He says some really nasty yeah. things. Yeah. 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 But, but you know, <laughs> they, it's like squabbling, you know, old married people almost. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and in a band, the thing that I think is very, very interesting is that it's like a family where no one ever grows up. Mm. In other words, whatever role you have, you're the drummer, you're the guitar player, you're the lead singer. That's your role. It does not change. Right. You're out on tour two years, you're the lead singer, or you're the drummer every night. And, like, in terms of how the song, how the sausage is made. Yep. You know, because, like, eventually, like, the drummer's like, I want to write a song. Yeah. I want to try singing. Yeah. And, like, you know, you almost have to have an acceptance of roles in order for the organism to function. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, you could, Scissor Sisters was... um, basically these kind of four guys and this and this one woman animatronic and um and then there were these backup singers but you could just feel the 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 deep bonds among the band members and they've been with each other day and night day and night day and night for years mm. functioning and then having to they're both a they're like a company a family and an act all day every day mm-hmm. there's no going home Right. It's not like, oh, now I'm going to like punch out. Especially on tour. Yeah, you can't. There's no punching out. And I think that when you get to a certain level of fame, there's no, in terms of your public image, there's no punching out. No, no. But, you know, but in the same breath, I'm always fascinated when I hear, you know, or I'll read an interview or I'll watch an interview or whatever with like Keith Richards. And he's like, yeah, I haven't seen Mick in like. You know, we don't really hang out off stage. Right. But then they like walk on stage and they're like smiling at each other yeah. and like, you know, they're, they're back to back. Yeah. And it's all that on stage and, and the, the love is real. Yeah. But it's all happening in front of it's everybody. And, right. they, yeah, and, then they leave, <laughs> and then they leave and they go to their hotel suites yeah. and they're like not they even do whatever. Do, they do right. whatever. Yeah. Right. 
And I guess like over 40 years, you don't need to be hanging out every minute. Well, imagine how many people are even married for 40 years anymore. I mean, is it 50 years? It's a really long, it's a, yeah, well, Mick Jagger is 75, right? Yeah. So he's been famous for many, many of his entire life. Those guys, those guys had success pretty much right out of the gates. They've been rock, like rock stars I their know. whole lives. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's a story I would love to be able to write as well, because I think what we all, at least what I want to know is, what does that feel like? Mm-hmm. Well, what, Keith Richards' book is a pretty good window. It is. It is. And he's very, he's quite honest and very, very smart in that book and very, very interesting. It's lucid. Great, yeah. Like unexpectedly lucid. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, it's, it's a really good memoir. But uh in terms of like the reinvention, like those themes, like to turn it back on writing, yeah. Um, do, do you I mean you had to feel something similar in order to go to this character? Yeah, and I thought this could really not work for so many reasons. The book is written in this book or this career. This book, well, this yeah. career definitely. <laughs> I feel that every day. <laughs> right. But this book, I mean, the book is written in these. Um, little fragmentary sections that have different little titles, which is the way that I always knew that I would write it. It's not the way I've ever written a book before. And I thought this really could be disastrous because it could just get really precious and really boring and a sort of, it's sort of, it can be sort of a trick. And I thought I'm going, I, I feared that I would be making a book that would read like my journal from the seventh grade or something. And but that was the way the book appeared to the, me. The, like the short verse, like to reflect like the, the peripatetic nature of life on the road or? All of it. The nature of life on the road, the way that you're city after city after city, but the, the fragments aren't all named after cities. It's also the way in which when you're on a journey, when you're on the road, when you're out of your familiar circumstances, I think we've all had the experience that it's as if, you know, your mind goes to these other places and it's as if the past and the present and the future are sort of happening at the same time. And I wanted that quality sure. in the book. I wanted that that feeling, that dreamy feeling. And she's at a turning point, right? It's like, is she going to keep going with this? Will she continue to, to own her vocation? Or is she going to say that's enough? I mean... It would be completely honorable to say that's enough. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think I mean I think that comes I think that happens to writers, um, just to stick to the theme here of this show. Yeah. But I, mean, I think people listening I think a lot more people feel that and really think about that than speak about it. Oh, I think people feel it every day. Yeah. Because also books take such a long time to write and then it's a long time before they come out and then you know, the rewards can be small. Yeah. And how many people are even reading your book? You don't know. What what makes it worth it? You know, like if it, because people always say, if one person reads it and really loves it and I get that one email, it makes it all worth it. And I, I get that. I've, I think I might have <laughs> even said that before, you know, but yeah. uh, how many people do you need? <laughs> I know. <laughs> as many as possible. Right. Um, I don't think... I mean, it's always completely wonderful to get that one email, right? It is. To get that one person who comes up to you at a reading. and I mean, I love that. Sure. Everybody loves that. But I don't think that in writing we seek fans in that way. Um, I think that it's 
it's the profound pleasure and urgency of building something beautiful in language. It's more like it's it's making something of beauty that is deeply, urgently meaningful to you. That's, I mean, I think that people talk a lot about the, the kind of tug between writing and kids, right? Just in terms of the sheer time involved. But it's more like child rearing than it is like, um, you know, singing a song so that one person hears it. You you raise something up. That's you a, make something happen. And of course it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, right? how many times have I read? I, I want to say I just was reading about George Eliot and um, was talking about like my books are my kids. Yeah. Or, or you know, using that. And it's a very yeah. common metaphor. You yeah. Because I feel like uh, when you finish a book, it's like, oh, my God, it's out of me. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, absolutely. And it's a labor. And then, then the book goes out into the world. And I've made this joke before where it's like it's like sending your kid off to preschool on the first day and you just yeah. don't want him to get beat up on the playground. Exactly. You know? No, exactly. Exactly. And also it's a kind of organic being. And mm-hmm. it, has, it has its own life. It also has your own flaws and maybe virtues. And there it is. There it, it lives, is. It lives, it breathes. And... And it's, I think that for those of us who, who make literary fiction, um, who aren't writing to a formula, right? What you're hoping each time is to make, is to make a book like no other book. This is the only kind of book that this book can be. And that is deeply meaningful, but of course it's hard to keep the faith. Yeah. I mean, well, and then like, just to throw it back to the music, uh, you know, the, the musical comparison is that. I'll read sometimes about, you know, this great album and they'll be like, yeah, we cut it in four days in New York. It was just yeah. this crazy session. <laughs> like, yeah. You're like this whole thing, this like timeless masterpiece. And they, you know, I know, I know that m- more goes into it than just the recording session, but it's like the quickness of poetry versus the quickness of long right. versus the slowness of long form right. literary fiction or nonfiction. Right. Well, also there's something that happens when, um, when musicians get together in a room, Right. There's some kind of synergy among those people mm. where, where you know, for some reason that night, the moon is something, the temperature right. is something. Maybe they've mixed their drugs a certain way, whatever <laughs> it is, or um, the relationships among the people in the room. Something happens, something clicks, and it happens. Well, see, this, I mean, I used to go to see The Grateful Dead when I was in college. Right. You and people, oh yeah, I still am. <laughs> I, I, I proudly defend it because um, I think that they were really shitty in those late years. I saw yeah. them at their like nader. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what I always loved about it, like I was, I was a big fan of the cultural history of the band. Yeah. And just like how I know strange it was, I and know. like, and then I'm from the Midwest. We didn't see anything like that. Yeah. It was like the craziest circus, and you know, came yeah. to town. But um, to you know, to what you were just saying, like. You would go to see them, and yeah, a lot of nights like they were they sucked. You could barely hear Jerry. Yeah, they were all out of tune. Like it was just yeah, you know. And I guess if you're high enough, it sounded wonderful. Yeah, but uh, some nights they were great. Right. And that just going like what was it? Was it the moon? Right. Were they feeling better? Right. Were they properly hydrated? Right. (laughs) Right. And what was happening in the crowd? Right. Exactly. Well, it's like what we were talking about before with with beauty. Part of the beauty of that moment, right, of hearing the dead live 
and when it was on is that that was the moment. Mm. And there might have been a hundred moments leading up to that that weren't so great. And two years without that moment happening, it's that you were there at that particular moment that can't be fixed. Right. It can't be kind of embalmed. You can't um, you can't catch it. You can only experience it. Like luck into it almost. You can only luck into it and that's that's part of the beauty of the experience that you you caught them that night. That's right? that's the thing. Like I will take that over an like an immaculately produced Exactly. Like the, the set list is set. Not that I have a problem with a set, like a fixed set list, but right. Like the improvisational nature of it, like the, is it going to work? Right. That was part of the fun. Right. It was like, oh shit, are we going to catch a good one? Right. You know, and some most of the time you didn't, but when you did, it was like that was awesome. Right. You know. Exactly. No. Exactly. I mean, um, recently I've been on this sort of Robert Altman kick, um, and I rewatched Nashville and uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, he worked very often, very improvisationally, where right. people would just, and you can tell that where those actors went in those moments, even if they had improvised and then sort of worked up a kind of working script, that they they went to these wild places. Mm. And we still feel that heat coming off the screen of, like, where the hell did that come from? It's right? like Cassavetes was the same way. Absolutely. Like super similar, like, like a completely wild Absolutely. process. Absolutely. And I think that sometimes we don't always put as much value as maybe we should on the on the wild unexpected, cathartic, unreproducible moment. Okay. So this is, cause this is what <laughs> I'm into like okay. artistically. Okay. How do you do that in literature? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question because there it is, you know, flat on the page, right? I mean, I think the answer is in one way you, you can't, right? Um, we don't have that, that beauty of the, of the moment, right? Mm. Literature is not time-based in the same way that some of these other art forms are. You go to see a dance, right? An amazing, an amazing dance performance. And the movement that that person makes in that minute, it's like, it just like takes the top of your head off. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen again, right? It's not going to happen again. Not like that. It's part of it. But I think that, that there are moments when the books that really light us up, it's often not that they're so beautifully composed and sort of chiseled out of marble in terms of their language. It's that they hit something wild in our, in our souls. You know, I'm a huge Ann Carson fan and she hits something wild that is inexpressible. And does she hit, and does she hit something wild because she's working really freely or is it just like she's a meticulous crafts woman <laughs> yeah you know? i don't know i mean you, I, we'd have to we'd have to ask her but I let's think get her she, on the phone <laughs> i know hi hi Les. hello but i think that um some of the books that are very beloved to all of us autobiography of red and the beauty of the husband and things like that she was writing the, my understanding is that she was writing those basically in complete privacy she wasn't trying to get them published when she was writing them and i think that that may be that may be part of it um that's but, that's it because i've 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 had that thought and maybe even tried to like do that where it's like this isn't for anyone just write this as if it's just for yeah. you but it's really hard to like trick yourself into that once you've published and yeah 
you yeah. know, to give yourself that kind of weird freedom. It's, it's hard to believe it. Yeah. No, ex no, exactly. Exactly. And this is why people on stage can spin themselves into that state, right? Because you're talking about a state of radical unselfconsciousness. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and For, From someone who is radically self-conscious. <laughs> yeah, exa right, exactly. And it's like, it's a really excellent question because obviously, you know, there's sort of, people have written lots of books about writers and drinking and writers and something, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, we know that. That's certainly one way, kind of. Did you read the trip to Echo Spring by any chance? No, is, I haven't read it's, that it's yet. It's sort of yet. about that very thing. Yeah, because they, they're trying to get there. Yeah. Right? They're trying to get there. Right. Um, but the problem with writing actually is the problem of duration. I mean, even if you're a really fast composer of a novel, you can't even type a novel in less than a couple months, no matter what you say. So the duration of using substances to get into to get to that place it's just going to be kind of hard because it'd be like every day oh damn you know 10 o'clock plus like it, there's just it's a diminishing return situation it's like and, and a, lo a lot of these stories of writers writing under the influence are apocryphal right uh, like Kerouac wrote on the road during like a pocket of, of rare yeah. sobriety right with exactly. coffee and like someone right. bringing him soup no you right know? exactly and that's that's the case a lot that that but I think that your question is really a good one because the way that we make what we make is most of the time we're sitting at a desk in a room somewhere and it's not necessarily a state that that produces that kind of radical unselfconsciousness. Mm. Um, being an outsider in any way is always helpful. You know, Baldwin always said, he said he was born black, gay, and ugly. I don't think he was ugly, but... He said it was the best thing that ever happened to him because he was pushed so far outside the usual. It was like, great. Let's, yeah. you know. I remember DeLillo saying something like that, like when, you know, some interview and he was kind of arguing that writers are always kind of bitching about how they're not closer to the center. And he's like, we don't belong at the center. No, you we don't belong be, on the periphery. Yeah. You don't want to be at the center. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the center is where. A lot of people in a room get together and decide what image or soundbite is marketable. And marketable's fine, but that's not going to give us the the wild experience that we long for, that I think we all long for. Right. And um, and the reading can can absolutely produce. I mean, you know, James Merrill did it with the Ouija board, right? Um, the surrealists did it by playing word games, by um, cutting up pieces of found text. Um, people try and try. You know, people try and try. And I think that in a funny kind of way, if you thought about it, probably the success rate of musicians and drugs, say, is no better or worse than the success rate of writers and the strategies that we use going out into the woods or... right. I feel, yeah, I feel like with drugs, like, uh, there's like a small window where it can work. It's not, yeah. su it's not a sustainable strategy, but it's not, uh, totally ineffective. No, absolutely. No, you know, absolutely. Your not. bookshelf and your record collection would not exist in similar fashion or, yeah. or at all. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that didn't John Waters say famously that when he made the movies that, you know, Pink Flamingos, the things that, you know, that he got famous for, he said, not only everyone making the film but everyone watching the film and the audience later was high right they're all in the same 
headspace. They're all in the same headspace, mm-hmm. and they're laughing. They're laughing their asses off. I mean, there's one one TV show that I'm incredibly fond of is Arrested Development, which I think is a brilliant and hilarious yeah. show. And I'm sure they weren't on any substances. But sometimes when I watch that show, I think, what were you people on? Where did you, how did you get that insane humor going? Because it's the kind of stuff that I don't know how you think it up in a in a fully conscious state. Well, you know, maybe I mean, who knows who, what they were doing when they wrote it. But the yeah. thing, too, is that like there again, you have like this collaborative medium. Yeah. And you have these really talented actors. Yeah. And then suddenly they get into those characters. Yeah. And then you, you, that show and shows like it, you really feel like people are riffing. Exactly. Like no, Jason, exactly. Jason Bateman is so quick and so funny. And Michael Sarah similarly, like those guys can really do it. I know they can really, really play. do it. They can really, really play. I mean, I think what we're talking about is that state of deep play and what makes it happen. And this is something that we all think about. I mean, for my character, what makes it happen is she she has a kind of a, a more or less steady day job and she leaves it and she goes on the road and she's ready to take her knocks and it works. It happens. Um, and, and just like the act of being out there on the road, being on stage. I mean, if there's a crowd, even if it's 50 people, yeah, you, you have to play. To some extent, right? Well, play or die. Play or die, <laughs> and, and like it, like that environment. That environment is where the happy accidents usually happen. Like, yeah. How many times have you read, like, oh, you know, our, our entire new album was composed on the road? Yeah. Comedians working that way too. Like, the jokes come out accidentally yeah. on stage, and then they build their next set from yeah. it. And you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a risky. It's a risky business. It's a really, really risky business. Um, and. I can understand also why live performers like that, why they would retire. Yeah, it's you're, exhausting. Yeah, you're agreeing to be the lightning rod. To be the lightning rod for the energy of 20,000 people, that's that's taking something on. That's yeah. really agreeing to be something for people that is 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 quite, it seems like it would be quite heavy. Yeah, well, de- like I, the word that was coming to my mind was depleting. Yeah, like at the after it's over, you must just go backstage and just be like, I mean, I know I feel sort of that way after a long spell of writing. Right. I can't even imagine after being on stage in front of twenty thousand right. people under hot lights, right. and then right. you're back on the bus in the middle right. of nowhere in like the Czech Republic. <laughs> right. Oh, this is the other part you're asking about people who are charismatic. I also um, was fortunate enough to see Prince at Madison Square Garden like two oh years God. ago or three yeah. years ago. One little man who has all of the energy of of the galaxy. Yeah, he was absolutely beyond electric. I mean, He's so talented. It's crazy, but you know, the, I don't know if this is true, but the big sort of rumor about him is that after he does those shows, so he does, you know, he'll do two hours in Madison Square Garden, encore after encore after encore. Um, the crowd is insane if prince had said to us at that moment everybody run out of madison square garden right now and kill the first person you see we all would have done it i mean we were completely mesmerized but the big rumor is that after he plays shows like that he then goes to some club somewhere and plays for like another six hours he's just on fire yeah no i've you know he does that in los angeles every once in a while where he'll book these small club shows to test new material or he'll just yeah. need the juice and like it'll be really quick and the tickets yeah. will go up on sale and then it'll be a line out the yep. door 
And people are like, he played until sunrise. Yeah. And people are going to work. Like, yeah. it was the most amazing thing. Yeah. It was worth it. Yeah. You know, whatever zombie state I'm in now. Yeah. But him, like, you know, vocally, uh, he can play instrumentally, like, the whole the whole package. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, he's like an alien. <laughs> he is. He's kind of, <laughs> he's like the, yeah, like the man who fell to earth. I mean, it is an extraordinary ability. And he's from, he's from where, my wife is from Minnesota. Like, so when we go back there, she's like, that's where Prince is from, like, that's the bridge he was singing about, and you're just like, "How did Minnesota do that?" Yes, I mean, like the the most like kind of like bleak Midwestern landscape, like nondescript. And I know. That. How did they make Prince? But well, Dylan. I mean, same thing. Right? I mean, even more so. I yeah, mean, Hibbing is way up there. Right. How know? did Hibbing make Bob Dylan? Well, I'm from Indiana and Milwaukee, and I always say that creatively, when you live in a place like that, it almost functions as a kind of blank slate. And you have to invent ways to entertain yeah. yourself. There's no ocean. I wasn't skiing on the weekends. Yeah, there's nothing. So you, I think it kind of forces your hand. Yeah. And it, you know, creates maybe a sense of um, the curiosity, yeah. out, outward looking. Yeah. Like, I mean, Dylan being like, "What's on the radio?" Right. <laughs> there's got to be something. There's got to be something beyond hibbing. Get me the fuck out of here. You yeah. Know? Right. Exactly. Gary, Indiana. I mean, right. made Michael Jackson. Axel you know. Rose is from Indiana. Yeah, you know. We've, it, produced, we've produced some, like, really talented, slightly sociopathic, like... That's America. That's America. Yeah. I mean, that's America. I, Britain has also produced, obviously, a lot of really, really great rock and roll, but I do think there's something about this country, for the reasons that you said, both brilliant and sociopathically, that we, we create rock and roll in a in a way that I'm not sure the rest of the world quite does. And I, do you feel like it's still the same? I mean, I know it obviously always changes. But no, like, it's I, not. I was thinking about Axl Rose the other day because he's big for me. Yeah. Like junior high, on the bus, <laughs> Appetite yeah. for Destruction, yeah. cassette tape, <laughs> yeah. in my like yellow Walkman, yeah. you know, like that yeah. was, because there, there hasn't been a band like that since, I don't think. Not so or, much. Or like I a mean, rock album yeah. that was really just so was so serious. Yeah, <laughs> I mean REM, I would say certainly um, was a was a huge sort of soul tapping rock band like that. But, they were huge for me in high but, school. Yeah, but it's a different. It is a different era. I mean, you know, back in the day, there were like four TV channels. Yeah. There were some radio stations. MTV played music. But, and when MTV arrived, that was revolutionary. I yeah. mean, that was such a strange thing. But now we're in a much more fractured landscape. And there's a million channels and there's a million downloads and there's a million those. One of the books that I read doing research for the book was um, Pamela DeBar's I'm With the Band. Oh, yeah, Which yeah. is, you know, she was this sort of, she was this groupie who was very well known sure. around L.A. in the late 60s and early 70s. And she's a very good reporter. And one of the things that she really depicts really, really well in that book is what it was like in those years. I mean, she lived for a long time in sort of the Captain Beefheart. It sounded like their sort of Captain Beefheart compound <laughs> somewhere around here in L.A. Sounds terrifying. And it was a different moment where one rock star and in those days most of them most not all of them but most of them were men they commanded enormous market shares sure so everyone sat around listening to this particular album and i think you know it was also album oriented radio so, rock radio oh yeah well and that idea of like 
tell us the news, right? What record is, well, for me, like it was Joni Mitchell, right? What's the next bulletin from the front, from the frontier of consciousness? What's she going to tell us? And each record was like a kind of um, message in a bottle from this place where they went to that we couldn't get to, but that we kind of intuitively identified with. And that was a really, really important time. And it's different now. It's, I mean, you think about the music business and you think about publishing and the fracturing of it. It's not too dissimilar. No, not at all. You know, like journalists working for free, you're writing yep. these little like blog posts. It's almost like bands. It's like, I hope one of our tracks gets downloaded. Yeah, right. The album is no longer the thing, which I think is really sad. Yeah, and, right. Exactly. Um, you know, did you ever see the David, uh, David Geffen American Masters documentary by yeah. any chance? Amazing. Super fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, talk about catching the wave at the right time. Yeah. But yeah, that was, was a totally different musical era. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that was back when bands could be huge. Huge. And now it's it's so sad. It's like you can't, the rock star thing, it can happen, but it's not nearly the same. No, it definitely is not the same. I and mean, I would say that, you know, someone like Bono probably is the, the closest thing we have now to that. I mean, yeah. I think that still the top grossing act worldwide is Lady Gaga. I think that she is the at least this was true a few years ago, she she just was the biggest star going. And then it, you went many rungs down to find to find the next little group of people. So she's... She's not... I mean, we could do worse. I mean, she can, she's got chops. She can sing and play the piano. And, she's totally got chops. And she's interesting. She yeah. evolves. She changes. She's thinking about yeah, exactly. stuff. She's not a dummy. She's not a dummy. And, but there's <laughs> yeah. so many. I don't mean I, to judge, but it's like sometimes you're like, my God, like I this know. is who we're holding up as I our know. cultural like pinnacle. And I know. I know. It's depressing. No, Gaga is a, is a kind of a culture vulture in the way that Madonna was. She's chewing through all these different visual looks. I mean, Beyonce, actually, I would say has that kind of global recognition oh, and huge. pull. She's huge. I love Beyonce. And she also changes often. Yeah. Look to look, record to record. Well, Madonna, that's Madonna's like, I mean, she, I feel like she really, um, it seems like she started that. I could be missing something historically, but like moving, like she picked yeah. up all these different styles and the voguing and like yeah. she was fascinated with Latin America yeah. for a while and then it became this other thing and um, I always find the Lady Gaga Madonna comparison interesting, simply because they seem to be mirror images of each other yeah. in some ways. Like Madonna can't really sing. No. Lady Gaga can. Yeah. Madonna's a superb dancer. Yeah. But Lady Gaga can't dance. Can't really dance, right? And so, like, they, I don't know, but they, yet they both, you know, visually and like yeah. you say, these culture vulture like, yeah, ways that they have. Yeah, they're prisms. Right. Do you know what I mean? I mean, when we think of... And they don't like each other, by the way. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> no. I heard uh, Lady Gaga and Howard Stern, and they're like, they said, you know, Madonna said some nasty things about Gaga, like oh. stealing her act, and, yeah. you know, the snowball rolled down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. They fa The whole thing fascinates me, and um, what are you going to do? Like, speaking of snowballs rolling down the hill, like, the, the changes that have happened, like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, you can't. I mean, I download... I download, I do pay for them, but I download songs at, you know, a buck, two bucks a pop and mm -hmm. move them around. I mean, the, the good news is that the landscape is very, very varied musically now. And there actually is a lot of astonishing music being made a that tons. you can hear. Yeah. More than ever. Amazing. 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 The bad news is that 
it may be reaching fewer and fewer and fewer people. So just like literature. Just like literature. <laughs> more and more and books, fewer and fewer people. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I mean, one thing that I always find encouraging about writing and, and books is that it's not that people aren't reading. People read all the time. Yeah. I see people reading constantly. Yeah. They read on their e-devices. They read. They're reading all the time. They're In many ways, they're reading more than ever. Right. The problem is that no one knows how to make money off of all those readers in right. the same way that no one knows how to make money off of all those listeners. But people do, they are hungry for stuff. It's the industry that doesn't know how to package and market things. So it's sort of a distribution problem more than a... I hope someone figures it out in like Silicon Valley, you know, or something. I don't know. I've thought about it so much, like with respect to books and online stuff. I know. And then the podcast, it's like... I know. There's just such a, a huge torrent or of content coming out. And so I how know. do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you find the good stuff and right, exactly. package it, make so make sure people know about it? Right, exactly. Well, this is the Jaron Lanier book, You Are Not a, you are not a Gadget. Is like he was one of the big pioneers of the internet, and he wrote basically this rant saying that, saying basically that creative content should not be free on the internet; that it that it erases the individual. Yes, and also that the way the internet got made, there were certain choices about formatting that have driven things to a place where it's harder and harder to use it as flexibly as we might want to. Um, and it's this, really interesting this show is no longer free, and if you're mad, you can blame Stacey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. now $20 an episode. I know. I know. Um, well, it's been so fun talking with you. I feel it's like we could keep time. going. Congratulations Thank on the you. book. Uh, I should ask, uh, what's the next act? Do you have, are, you, are you just doing this book now? Well, right now I'm just doing this book. I have, I, I've started something else very different. I usually don't talk about them much. Yeah, no. uh, it's but, hard to talk about at different. any stage, but yeah. especially if it's like the early messy part. Yeah. Is that where you are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I love that part. Yeah. I it's love like, that well, part. You know, finger, really? finger painting in the dark. It's great. It's totally great. Well, I wish you luck with it, and thank, thank you so you. much for thank taking you. the time. Thanks. All right, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's Stacey Durasmo. Go get her new novel. It's called Wonderland. It's out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find Stacey online at stacydurasmo.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget about that app. Go get that app, the free official Other People app. Uh, download that to whatever device you have, whatever device you're carrying, whatever device you happen to be packing, whether it's your phone or your iPad or what have you. And then once you have the app, sign up for premium if you're so inclined. You can access uh, the full archives, every single episode. Great way to support the show. And, uh, hey, don't spend too much time uh, reading terrible news online. Learn from me. Learn from the error of my ways. I mean, yeah, stay informed. But here's the thing. You know, don't dwell on it. Don't read the same story over and over again. Don't keep going to the same website. That's my problem. And I'm not even reading the, you know, the, the articles over and over again. It can just be the headlines, just little reminders. The planet is melting. The planet is melting. The planet is dying. It's happening. We're fucked. We're fucked. <laughs> How many times do I read we're fucked on my computer screen? on a daily basis. Please remember that Pablo Neruda died of leukemia and that Jackson Pollock liked to bake pies. That's it for now. Thanks once again to Stacey Durasmo. Go get her book. Thanks to you guys. Uh, I appreciate you listening. I'll be back again soon with another conversation with another uh, bookish human being. And uh, I don't know. In the meantime, I'll just be sitting here probably. I can't go outside. It's too, it's too fucking hot. I can't deal with it. 
I don't like the summer. I don't like the heat. Uh, I'm scared of the sun, as we all should be. The sun, uh, the planet's melting. The sun is causing the planet to melt. But what you, actually, it's not the sun. It's not the sun's fault. Why are we blaming the sun? It's, it's our fault. I just blame the sun. <laughs> it's the fucking sun's fault. It's the Death Star. Death Star.